You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 154. For this edition of the podcast, Deanna Delandro joins me as co-host for a conversation with Brooklyn indie rock stalwart Drew Citron. Drew has remained a constant force in the New York City music scene for over a decade, fronting the critically acclaimed Beverly, playing bass in post-punk quartet, public practice, and as a touring member of both The Pains of Being Pure at Heart and Frankie Rose and the Outs. In October, she released her debut solo album, Free Now, via Park the Van. The record chronicles a time of transition in her life, delving into her mindset through a gorgeous collection of intimate folk, pop-inspired songs. During our interview, we talked about her formative musical experiences in both her hometown of San Francisco and her adopted home of New York City, writing free now on the northern coast of California, how she's been spending time while quarantined, and a whole lot more. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website, where you can find reviews, premieres of brand new music, playlists, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. All right, everyone, I'm here with Drew Citron and very special co host, Diana Delandro. Drew's new record, Free Now is out now on a cool label called Park the Van. They're a great label. I'm just finding out about them and learning more about them. Yeah, they're very cool. They're very active. They're very, like, involved. I really like them. I've had a really good time with the release. They're very hands-on. I like that. Hands-on is excellent. Yeah. But before we get into the record... Very curious about your background. Mm-hmm. You know, I've mentioned at the top that big Beverly fan, have both the records, been to a bunch of Beverly shows and have enjoyed that band very much. But I know you're originally from San Francisco. And in some of the press that was out recently, you mentioned mm-hmm. growing up in the scene there and going to shows and things like that. And I know in the aughts, there was a really good san francisco music scene back then there's so many good bands that i could think of like the fresh and onlys grass widow yeah the mantles as well so i i was wondering were there any memorable shows or experiences that you had being involved in the music scene there that made you think like oh i really want to do music yeah actually it's funny you mentioned grass widow because i really was like a follower and obsessed with this band hannah from grass widow's husband was in called Trainwreck riders there was like a very intense kind of like cowpunk scene when i was in high school just that kind of thing like a little bit of a yeah uh, you know and toulance was a big i was a big fan of that band and like it was just a lot of um 
kind of like revivalist honky tonk drunk white guys that was the nice. scene and then slightly like nice fringing on math rock as well um so that what, was what a combination that was like how i grew up <laughs> it was going, complicated cowboys punk shows and there was just regular um kind of crusty hardcore bands too and like all my friends that were in bands and funnily enough you know i've mentioned this in interviews but like i never joined a, I never started or joined a band until i was an adult an adult um which is you know interesting to think about like i definitely should have but it was a very male-dominated scene and it was not it's not like it was like it just didn't even occur to me that i could be in a band until i moved to new york which is just interesting. Mm. It was just different back then, I think. Yeah. How was the transition moving to New York from San Francisco? Um, it was cool. I came here to go to school and um, I always wanted to be here. And I can't like pretend to be more involved with like the New York downtown scene than I was because I wasn't like, but I definitely did move to New York in 2004 and it was really awesome. It was really fun. And there was just more, it just felt like there was a, a lot more room for weird happenings and things that didn't require a lot of like infrastructure or money to make happen. And I know that's kind of a tired subject, but it's true. It was a little more like wild and wooly and crazy back then, I think in the music world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was totally a cool time. A lot of different venues, mm -hmm. way more in Manhattan mm -hmm. back then, like Cake Shop and cool places that are no yeah. longer here. Right. What, what do you remember about that time Actually, in particular? Um, you know, uh, Andy from Cake Shop actually emailed me a while ago. Like he found an email from me to him to like info at cake shop in like 2006 <laughs> being like all girl band you're gonna really dig it you know like trying to book my band at cake shop and he was like lol look at this um which is very cute is there anything i remember about that time i don't know it's all a blur you know i'll put it that way i went to a lot of shows i've worked at a lot of shows i've played a lot of shows what band were you in at that point in time because i know you were involved with frankie rose before starting beverly what were your early musical projects in new york city oh, i had like i had i had like a very um melodic kind of like uh singer songwriter twee project in college and then i was in like a dance electro pop band after that and then i you know toured with several bands i've just like always been working on something um and yeah i always you know i've i i talked to my boyfriend about like which which diy venues could you like not have lived without and it's always like you know a tie between the top three i guess it's always like would could you live without dba 285 or glass bands and it's like well <laughs> you know and then there's that meme like uh, whatever walking around williamsburg like this used to be a diy baby. yeah the <laughs> okay grandma okay grandma grandma <laughs> so 
<laughs> it really like yeah i never pursued it i never pursued music like full time until it became a reality that i was pursuing it full time does that make yeah. sense like i just kind of yeah. like totally and to be to be perfectly honest that was kind of the moment that like frankie asked me to play in her band because i joined her band right before the success of her first solo kind of second solo record but um i got to tour the world and i was immediately very interested in continuing to do that so it's kind of just fueled the fire on that like just keep putting stuff out and keep hopefully getting opportunities to do that cuz i love it cuz following that you toured with like the drums and we are scientists yeah, so Beverly did, we've done a lot of, we did a lot of cool support tours. We got to tour with the drums. Um, we toured with We Are Scientists a bunch. Um, we've supported a lot of like bigger UK acts, I would say. Maximal Park, do you remember that band? Yeah, totally. Um, so we've just done some cool, bizarre experiences playing for like 5,000 people that don't care about us, which is always really educational and really fun and like you can just go crazy and do whatever you want and then you always meet like at least five people at the merch table and that's like what it's about you know yeah and then mm -hmm. they're hooked those experiences pre-beverly seem like a really big turning point in your career as mm -hmm. a musician playing with frankie rose touring with the pains of being pure at heart when they were really making great, great mm -hmm. records I, at that yeah. time. How do you think those experiences prepared you to get started with Beverly, which was kind of like a real big project for you? Um, well, the experiences of being a touring member of like a mildly successful indie rock band have to do with like, pretty much what you would apply to doing anything in life and like in any career like it's actually just mostly about not being an asshole and like keeping your mood in check and like knowing when you need space it's kind of like how to be a good employee and like how to be a good member of a family it's it's really intense it's close quarters and it's mostly just about like be nice and know when you need alone time and, uh, you know, don't ever jeopardize the van schedule, <laughs> which I've done. It's about making mistakes and learning from them. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, it's really, I'm very lucky to have had so many experiences like that and I can't wait to do it again. Maybe next year maybe the year after yeah i'm curious about the background of beverly and how it started i remember being really into beverly right from the start because i was familiar with frankie rose and i know mm -hmm. she was involved and then i remember going to shows but then at a certain point she wasn't involved anymore and then i was still really hooked on the both the records and the music and stuff so it kind of started out as a collaborative project but then at some point it shifted to primarily your project right when did that happen so it happened right before the first record came out i'd been in frankie's band for like two record cycles and we were working on the next one and it was just very like 
a lot of stuff was going down with labels and a lot of like pressure and weird stuff going on with her. Um, but she at that point had said like, let's just have fun. Like she drummed in crystal stilts. She drummed in Vivian yeah. girls, dum dum girls. Yeah. Like she's a drummer who was like, I'm so stressed out about what's going on with my solo record. Let's just like go to the practice space and have fun. And I was like, cool. I'm just going to shred on guitar and we'll try these songs. And we like wrote, wrote some stuff together and it was all kind of just a fun joke. And we kind of <laughs> played a couple of shows and got signed immediately to canine records. And they said, let's put it out in a couple months and at that point she kind of said you know we have to focus whatever we were on tour for a frankie tour while finishing the mixes for the beverly record and she was like this is just too much and i kind of don't want to do it and i was like okay i'll just get other people and continue it because i really believe in it and i have fun doing it so that's the whole thing was that scary for you to kind of go in with someone else who at first was like, oh, you know, we're going to do this together. And then you're kind of pushed into this the spotlight almost as, yeah. a, you know, it's principally your vision yeah. from that point forward. I mean, a lot of like artistry, I feel like involves a certain level of like blind narcissism at a certain point. You just have totally believe in it and think you're the best and get behind it a hundred percent. And I kind of did that. I was like, okay, these are my songs and they're totally viable and I have to make it happen. And I just like went into this really intense mode and Leo from canine was just so, so supportive. And I remember we played a big, we played our record release show at babies and it was sold out. And then we played like kind of a showcasey one at Brooklyn Bazaar when they used to do it over. I was at um, that show. That was a sick show. It was, wasn't it? I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a always, great show. Always played that night. Is that true? Did always? Play yeah, that night? they did. Um, they did. But, yeah, and I was like, this show. Amazing. I was like, <laughs> I remember being like, not a lot of stage presence. Really great songs. Like I said something like really <laughs> shitty to my bandmate. I love that band so much. Um, it's just funny. That was a long time ago. But basically, yeah, Leo came up to me and was like, I'm so proud of you for just carrying this. And I know it's been really intense. And yeah, it was a really hard time. And I pushed through it. And like, I'm really glad I did. And I honestly like feel a little bit the same way about this record release. Because the lineups changed again and blah, blah, blah. And I used to like feel really weird about that, about having the lineup change so much in Beverly. And um, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it really doesn't. No. Like, it's my music. Yeah. People don't care. They're like, wow, that bassist is really good. Whatever. Like, no one cares. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> unless you're, That's true. Unless you're, you know, Switching the lineup of Van Halen, no one cares. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I just, that's how I feel about it now. But that's come with many years of having to like get used to that reality. Cause it's like, hey, we all have jobs and we all can't necessarily like get the same dates off to go to, you know, Eugene, Oregon at the end of August. You know, I'm naming a random. Yeah. <laughs> 
to go to Columbus, Ohio again. Um, It's hard to put a four-piece, five-piece band together, so... That's good, though. Yeah, both the Beverly records, like I've I've said, the first one and the Blue Swell were both great. So that confidence is warranted for sure. Both excellent, excellent records. I love the Blue Swell so much. And like, it's interesting. I felt really like bummed about the press cycle for that because the first record got a lot more attention because Frankie's name was attached and she was so big in 2013 or whatever that was. And I just was like, you know, I would get so bummed out about that stuff. You can't, you can't let any of this get to you. The older I get, yeah. the more I don't care at all. I really don't. It's, it's a tough industry for sure. Mm-hmm. And things like that ebb and flow. And it doesn't really, it's not really indicative of the quality of the work either. Not at all. You know? I really, I really appreciate like, especially because this record came out in the height of quarantine kind of tail end of quarantine. Sorry, that's a lie. The public practice record that we made came out in the height of quarantine. Um, And it's just, this is my second release of quarantine. And like, I feel that the digital interfacing between the music and the listener has been actually quite positive. Like I've, I've gotten a lot of messages from new fans and stuff like that, which has been really awesome comparatively to before when it was like i really you know you just hope it gets reviewed by pitchfork and then whatever i I don't know it's just been cool that it's all kind of just happening on instagram now yeah it is cool it's cool to interact with people who appreciate your work and stuff like that individual fans things like that for sure so this new record free now you wrote most of the songs along the coast of Northern California, kind of separated, I mean, definitely separated from your home in Brooklyn. So different surroundings, and it's very therapeutic sounding. It's really beautiful record. What was the writing process like for the album? And was that the first time you wrote songs or a record really separated from your regular surroundings? You know... That's not the first time I've done that, but it's the first time I've done it, like, alone, completely. I was alone for a week or two, and I love a writing retreat. I love to, like, set up a little interface and my little amp and get weird sounds and just get weird. Yeah, I had, like, a lot of material to work with at that point and a lot to say, and I uh, didn't hold back and I didn't I didn't edit much and um I was on the coast um and it was beautiful and it was like really yeah it was really cathartic as you said I love how much your vocal really comes through in your solo music um it's so it's awesome but it's you know just approached differently it's texturally different and here you can you can even resonate more with your the lyrics, you know, whatever you're going, all the things you're going through at that specific point, because you can hear them so clearly and beautifully. Your voice is beautiful. Like, I love that you kind of like leaned into that more, you know, I guess, um, in this specific style that you this time. Thank you so much for saying that. I, I, uh, I've had like a lot of 
you know when you hear someone you know when you hear someone say something that like either really resonates with you or really hurts your feelings or something that you're like i'm never gonna forget that that something that you said something that uh kip berman actually said to me once from pains of being pure at heart was the number one mistake that like indie musicians make is burying the vocal in the mix yeah 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 i like, think so i totally agree it's with just that not it's just not a thing that like the modern human ear is used to and yes i love that vibe i love all of the like you know i love the canon of twee music and like shoegaze music and it's actually he's like it's just the number one mistake you can make and he like said it to me personally like you you can fucking sing and that's really rare for this um <laughs> genre that you are working within so just do it and i was like okay yeah i'm gonna do it and then it took me like three records to do it you know and so i'm starting to do it and i have the i have the second solo album basically mixed at this point and it's very very pop vocal forward for sure yeah because i mean on free now especially when you're you know talking about these deeply personal um, experiences chronicling, you know, the split with your partner and all of that stuff is very, you know, raw. And just to be able to like be vulnerable in that space and hear all of that is so special. You know, like, were you, were you worried at first and like sharing in that way? Yeah, of course. Uh, it's terrifying. I think it's not so much anymore because it's been so long because the record cycle has just taken forever because of the pandemic. But yeah. that's how it is, you know? And I've said this in all the interviews, like I have come to expect that level of vulnerability from all of my icons. So why would I ever shoot for anything below that bar? of like emotional vulnerability yeah that doesn't make it not challenging though for sure because yeah yeah I'm, you know i'm not an artist or a musician but anytime i'm dealing with something in my past that is really tough to deal with you know you kind of want to deal with it and then move on as an artist you're writing a record, recording a record for people to mm -hmm. consume, relate with and enjoy. And then it's, it's still out there, you know, it's still out there. So it's definitely a challenging thing to do. Right. Like, I mean, for me, the catharsis is, I feel like shit. I feel like shit. I feel like shit. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, totally. I feel like, <laughs> shit, I feel like shit. I feel like shit. I'm not even able, I'm, I'm lying down in the shower. I like can't get up today. I'm so sad. I'm so sad. I'm so sad. And then picking up the guitar and like playing something to make myself feel better. And then like playing a little melody idea. And then it's the only thing that makes me feel better is going, oh my God, that's really good. Oh my God, I have to flesh this out. And I'm going to like tell, tell it exactly like it is in this moment. Yeah. And that's a really amazing gift yeah. to like pull yourself out of depression that I feel very, um, you know, lucky to have. And also I hope that other people listen to the music and relate, you know, 
to heartbreak in general. Everyone relates to heartbreak, you know, it's not, it's not singular to me. I hope that like my singular experience can help other people. Yeah. And I was really intrigued by a recent interview you did where you described the songwriting process for this record as trying to create feelings with the sounds that you were making through arranging and through your guitar playing. What was Mm -hmm. the process like of translating emotions that you were feeling at the time into the arrangements of the songs? And how do you know exactly when you're like, aha, that's really capturing what I'm feeling, this sound, these this melody? You know, I'm so, like, I'm pretty over-the-top, cheesy, melodically. Um, and I, I'm very much, like, I think, like, the most beautiful counterpoint melodies that kind of sit in a chord in a way that, like, makes you feel something is really important. I don't know if that's too vague. I'm just trying to like stretch what I know about melody. And then it's just the counterpoint of like the rhythm parts and the bass and the melody and like how powerful that can be. And it's like exhibited by many songs by the Bee Gees and the Carpenters, right? So that's like kind of what I'm interested in is like trying to do that with my songs does that make sense yeah totally are you the kind of songwriter where like you know you maybe set up your guitar and like you know go through your process that you're mentioning and then at the end of it like you're like oh wait like that's how i'm feeling like it kind of just like pours out in a way that maybe you didn't even realize before and it like surprises you when you like come out of that yes actually um Yes, because to be honest, a couple of the songs on <laughs> this is crazy. This is like some witchcraft, and you are correct. <laughs> but a couple of the songs on Free Now, I had no idea were even breakup songs. And then the yes. breakup happened after they were written. They were like prophetic yeah. breakup songs. Like, this is how it's going. And my partner at the time was, like, my musical collaborator as well. And he's just the best and supportive. He's just like, uh, wow, wow, cool song, you know? But really, it was, like, Like, all under the surface. It's so crazy. So, yeah, it's the subconscious. It's the unconscious mind, for sure. I think so. And um, to speak to, like, my upbringing a little bit, This is a little bit of like a jump in topics, but my mom is a painter. She's a visual artist. And I completely think that that's something that's colored my relationship to the unconscious mind and creativity. And like, she's also just like a really hard worker. Like she has gone to the studio every day of my life, basically. Like, I can't remember a day she didn't go in my childhood. And that's amazing. That's an amazing gift, too, to be in a lineage of artistic women. Totally. Mm. That's really cool. Something that you've mentioned in press for this also was that you were originally considering releasing this collection of songs as just the third Beverly record. 
but you ultimately decided to end Beverly and release it under your own name. What went into that decision specifically? And why did you decide to do that? I think because the material is so personal. And like, even though Beverly is like, I was the I was the dominant songwriter of that band. It's like the ethos of that band was quite different than this record. And I think it's just more exciting to say like, hey, here's a new thing. Just to be perfectly um, crass about it. Like from a, public, from a publicity standpoint, maybe. <laughs> but, um, you know, the label was like, just do a solo record. It's so personal. Just put your name on it. And I was like, no, I can't, I can't. <laughs> and then I did. And then you did. You did it. <laughs> yeah. And was it a difficult decision to end uh, Beverly? And looking back on that decision, how do you feel about it now that your first post-Beverly release is out there? I feel good. It's like, it's so exciting mm. to like end something on a high note. Yeah. It feels great. We just had nothing but a blast in that band. Like, I cannot speak more highly of all the experiences and all the all the fun van rides and all the weird, um, you know, weird shows, <laughs> weird experiences, um, great shows, and all the, like, amazing friends we made like i i really feel lucky that i got to be kind of um grandfathered into the like uh nyc pop fest and baltimore pop fest scenes like just by virtue of like who i was connected to at that time and i was really embraced by those people and it's just the best like all those bands are so awesome they are nyc pop fest was awesome yeah. As much as Free Now is a record about a breakup, it's definitely also about growth. And I was just curious, how do you feel like you've grown as an artist and a person after writing and recording this really profound uh, record? Hmm. I'm just like light years beyond how I was uh in terms of like technical knowledge back then when I first started, I guess, like I, I've just come leaps and bounds in like audio engineering capacity. That's <laughs> so boring to talk about, but it's so, it's really empowering and really cool to like know how to record yourself properly. Yeah. So what, cause, cause I, I was curious about the production behind the blue swell, but you're credited as engineering producing that record too. Mm -hmm. And you're, you basically, you did engineer this record free now as well. So what, cha what changed as far as what you were able to do in the studio between that record and this record? It's just kind of like, um, that's a really good question. I think now I'm just more confident and I don't care as much. Like I'm not as nitpicky yeah. cuz I cuz I know more. Like I'm not going to sit with a mixing engineer or a producer and be like scrolling through reverbs for 3 hours. Like I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. I don't care. Like I actually kind of the more you know the more you're like 
whatever. It is what it is. Let's record the tape so we can just end yeah. the recording yeah. session. Like, that's my dream is like, let's get amazing sounds and record the tape and then never touch it. Did you record this record to tape? I did not. Some of it touched tape and bounced back. My new solo record, I recorded a lot to tape and a lot to a four track in quarantine. And I'm super stoked about that. That is super exciting. So you're using some of the four track recordings on the the finished product. That's awesome. Yeah. Like a lot of it is demos that I recorded over and a lot of the like acoustic guitar and vocal is to the four track. So that'll be cool. You can't really beat that intimacy and that rawness sometimes of recording yeah, to tape living with <laughs> the quirks of tape the warmth and of tape is awesome so that's exciting I, I love it and now now that i'm like not scared to be vulnerable it's like <laughs> oof, you're gonna you're gonna be like okay that's a little too intimate thanks you're gonna get real close can't <laughs> wait we're here for it we're here for it yeah i'll just it's gonna sound like i'm you know just like hugging you way too hard that's what it's like that's good i love a good hard aggressive hug exactly so i do want to have a i have a couple of questions about the recording of free now specifically just that going into the recording sessions for this record What was your mindset as far as what you wanted this record to sound like? Did you have a clear vision for what sonically you were going for? Or did it play out over the different sessions? I wanted it to sound like the Carpenters and like Heart and like, um, yeah, like just 70s women. And I kind of like don't think it turned out like that but i also think that's fine because it's like more of a middle of the road kind of pop record and kind of timeless sounding and i also to be perfectly honest like i think like the like thing that's like really 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 happening in la is like this post whatever i can't i'm not gonna say anything mean but there's like a paisley revival in the canyon it's raining down from the canyons and i'm kind of like that's cool i like you know hollow body guitars too like that's fine yeah it's a good point because that is definitely happening it's not inaccurate what you're talking about So you also worked with a lot of different people on the record. Sam Evian, Mm -hmm. John Agnello, who is incredible. But you you produced, engineered, and played the largest role in shaping the sound of record, the record. So I was just curious about what role these various people played in making the record and kind of just how it was structured and how it went. Well, so, like, Sam engineered a lot of stuff at his house upstate. And and Yellow and I recorded a lot um, at a studio he used to work at, which is now closed. Um, Water Music in Hoboken, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 
basically I didn't end up using many of that the songs from that session. It was just a thing where I just had so many hard drives full of different yeah. versions of everything that I like finally kind of pulled it together by um, mixing it with one dude, which is kind of how how it had to be done. Yeah, especially yeah. like monetarily, like over time, like just kind of get this stuff done and then take a couple songs to get mixed and then you know. It, it's like a labor it's a time intensive time intensive way to do it i guess i mixed most of it with jake aaron okay so it was mixed by jake and one song by claudius the best dudes i'm just like surrounded by you know all stars <laughs> totally just by virtue of living here for so long i think absolutely a lot of all stars yeah. Yeah. So Public Practice also released their first full-length record this year. It's cool that you're involved in that project, too, because it's very different sounding, you know, uh-huh. way more post-punk sounding, post-punk oriented band. What was that like, putting out two records in the most bizarre year, you know, any of us have ever experienced in our lifetimes, at least the three of our lifetimes? Yeah, uh, it was interesting. It was very devastating at the time. And public practice just kept getting really cool opportunities. And we were going to go over for our first headline tour in the UK in May. And we had like uh, an amazing release party planned at the Wharfcat offices. And like, I don't know, it's just such a bummer that it didn't happen and also seems um it seems like a million years ago at this point especially with everything that was going down this summer with protests and the election and everything that's happened since we've all really like gotten our priorities in check about that at this point so it's all good we're writing again we just went on a little writing retreat and we wrote a couple really good songs i'm super excited about I'm very excited. That's cool. It's also cool to be involved in two serious projects where they're very, very different sounding. It's not like you're drumming in a band that, like, you know, plays a show once a month or whatever. They're, you know, your solo stuff and public practice, both, you know, once touring is back, you'll both probably have like serious tours happening and things like that. So it's definitely. Yeah cool to be involved in two different outlets like that yeah i hope so i just like signed up for uh (laughs) south by southwest online next year yeah (laughs) i don't know man we'll see i love that i love them so much yeah i was i was disappointed i was really excited to go this year yeah me too i mean it's interesting because obviously I got in for last year um, and I had pulled the band together, but Laura, my longtime uh, guitarist and singer in Beverly was super pregnant in March of last year and has since had a baby in COVID. And she was like, I don't know if like being eight months pregnant, like on an air mattress at the like, you know, 
travel lodge is going to be a good idea for me. And I was like, totally, totally respect that. I was kind of yeah, freaking yeah. out about how to do South by, and then it magically didn't happen. So what was that like? Because I know it was, it must've been very disappointing to have to have everything called off in you know, a pre-release cycle where you're planning everything and then you're ready to hit the road and then it's kind of just the rugs pulled out from you, under from under you. Were you able to, Because, but it sounds like you definitely bounced back because now you're already preparing for a second record, which you must have written and recorded this year. How quickly were you able to kind of put that behind you despite the huge disappointment yeah i think like the stages of grief are very different for lots of people and mine apparently involves like a heavy manic phase and productivity so i like immediately went to the practice space because nobody was going in there because there were no shows and it was actually technically illegal to be in there because it was a commercial building and it was closed so i just like went in there every day and wrote and recorded demos i made an entire album in like april like in in quarantine that's awesome um, and it was awesome and then by the time may rolled around i was a little more like i don't know if I'm going to go in today, <laughs> you know, the Nick Cage marathon and just make pasta with my roommate. We're just going to like get really into like intense pasta recipes that take hours. I mean, how, how did everyone else do it? And then we were so excited because, you know, pride rolled around and the protests started happening. And I mean, excited is not the right word. Um, we were activated by yeah. the events of this summer so it was kind of a whirlwind weirdly even though it felt interminable at the time and with with your involvement um over at alphaville are were you involved at the beginning of the year with like closures and stuff like that no so i haven't worked at alphaville since probably 2019 so I was kind of out of there by then. And I was also working at Elsewhere as a sound engineer, but I quit around that time as well. So actually, weirdly, I didn't get the, like, um, our employee fund kind of through Elsewhere because they did a very, very generous fund for their employees. Um, and they're awesome, too, by the way. Shout out those guys. Yeah, I know, I know you've done a lot. you've done a lot of sound engineering i was gonna say do but this year not really any <laughs> no. live sound engineering but how yeah. how has that altered your perspective as far as your own music if if at all it's interesting honestly i don't know what i'm gonna do when things open back up i don't know like i don't need to be listening to like <laughs> that much music at that loud of a volume yeah of the week do you know what i mean yeah have you noticed you're just everything's like changing inside your brain, not yeah. being pummeled with like subwoofer all the time? <laughs> I don't know. I that's the only difference for me. I'm like, yeah. wow, I really used to listen to really loud music for yeah. five hours every night. I, I burn out on live sound and like I love it and I miss it 
to be honest, but I also, it's not like a lifelong career. Yeah. But it's awesome and it's a great skill set to have um, as a musician. It's also so refreshing to see a woman behind the board at any point. It is. It's it's like less of a big deal as it was when I first started. And one of my favorite people who works in New York City, who's not necessarily directly a mentor to me, but I think of her as one, is Dana Walks, who works at Le Poisson Rouge. And she's been doing live sound since the early 90s. Like, can you imagine? Like, can you imagine? (laughs) I just can't even imagine the things that were probably said to her. Yeah. Or said about her within earshot. Like, it's crazy. So, yes, very much. Hell yeah, to women working in sound. Huge props, for sure. So we're almost at the point where we're going to play some songs from the record. And I know Deanna has a couple of questions about a couple of tracks. Some of the, the grunge, like, that you can hear on Beverly kind of dipping in and out of certain certain songs when there are these specific swells. And I'm wondering if, like, how intentional that was. Like, I mean, I guess maybe just with, like, you know, the emotion behind certain songs, like on Birch Tree, once it, like, progresses and evolves, you get this, like, you know, the this kind of like grungier element like dips back in do you think maybe that's like kind of a callback to Beverly or is it just just like a new way of presenting it yeah like I think that that's just probably part and parcel like me as a songwriter because I like loud guitars and pretty singing you know that's my bread and butter so you know Honestly, I should probably try to rock a little more on this yeah. next record because I love I love it. You know, why not? Yeah. Did you did you feel like I want to get a little because there's a little rock in this record? I'd mm-hmm. say mostly it's really serene and calming sounding, but there are some key moments where you know, it really rocks. Were you thinking, oh, I want to make sure I get some of it in there or it just kind of happened type of thing? It just kind of happened. And I'm like always writing and I'm like, these are the best songs. Yeah. So that's about it. Just pick the best songs. That's what I do. And I also was a summertime music video specifically. Like the narrative there, I watched it a few times and I was still just like trying to pick out, you know, looking at the lyrics and I was like, maybe can you tell me about like, you know, the production behind that? Maybe dive into the story a little bit. Totally. So the, the summertime video is shot for shot, the opening sequence of, um, King of New York, um, the Christopher Walker movie. So it was just Jim's idea to, do that the guy who directed it he's like i've always wanted to recreate this it's such a good (laughs) sequence and i was like perfect so actually i do have somewhere i can email it to you i have like a side by side of the two videos i played christopher walken's character so i'll I'll send that to you wow i did not know that prior to watching so i was like in so interesting. <laughs> it's so specific. I'm glad I had a specific answer. I think I think um, we 
discussed maybe releasing it as a side-by-side but then we didn't want to have to deal with youtube rights but yeah everything uh, yeah i guess that makes sense because everything is so beautifully cinematic and like badass yeah without a doubt we're all huge huge fans of the summertime music video all right so we're gonna play some songs from drew's awesome new record free now again everyone you can get it on limited edition vinyl via park the van it's also available on drew's Bandcamp, drewcitron.bandcamp.com we're gonna hear dead on arrival kiss me don't know a good thing, loves the illusion, and then we will be back to play some records.
right, welcome back. We just heard four songs from Drew's brand new record, Free Now. We heard Dead on Arrival, Kiss Me, Don't Know a Good Thing, and Loves the Illusion. Again, everyone, you can get a copy of Free Now on vinyl via drewcitron.bandcamp.com. Now, Drew picked some records from my record collection and we're going to talk about them. We're going to play them. Starting with Health Machine by Sam Evian off of You Forever. So is he a collaborator of yours? I know he was involved in some of the songs on this record in some way. Yeah, so uh, no, we are not regular collaborators. We're old friends because I was a big big fan of his band celestial shore and i am blanking on whether it was plural celestial shores yeah celestial. i don't remember um and i did sound for him on halloween one year at silent barn when he was doing a I want to say like T-Rex cover set for oh, house nice. <laughs> or something like that. Um, and yeah, we're just old friends and I admire his songs so much. I admire his production and his songwriting so, so, so much. And Health Machine is like just my favorite song off that record. Nice. That's a good song. It's a good record. Yeah. Wildly good. All right. Next Bella. I never know how to say this band's name, but I always associate them with Elephant Six, but I'm pretty sure they're not actually an Elephant Six band. But Yoko is the album. Fooled yeah. with the Wrong Guy is the song Love. they picked. Love. So this is a song that reminds me of... So I liked this. This was like a record that my coolest friend played at her college radio station when she went to um or no i'm sorry she didn't go there she just lived in maine and like had a show at bowden college oh, she, was wow. that, she was that cool in high school she just had a like midnight indie show and she would like make tapes of her show and mail them to me and we were real pen pals and that's how i got introduced to this band yeah, they're an awesome, awesome band. Mm-hmm. Up next, All Odds End is the record by The Mantles and the song Hate to See You Go. I love The Mantles. Um, my favorite song is Please Don't Lie from a different record. And I got to represent San Francisco. Shout out Slumberland Records. Um, this is just the best of the best slumberland material yeah absolutely you ever see them back in the 2000s in san francisco i didn't it's very sad me too i'm sad i've never seen them live either i've seen his like solo stuff um as an older adult like i played a show with him in oakland once when i was in my friend's band all right next Blur, their first album, Leisure, which I think is underrated. And I've heard him say he hates this record, but I actually really like it. Um, 
She's So High. Great song. I just love that song. You know, I just love Blur. There's nothing more to say. Were, were you big Britpop fan uh, growing up, high school, things like that? Was that a genre you're really into or was it something? No, but like, to be fair, I got into it later like as an anglophile and as a person who just was so embraced in the uk on tour yeah like i just i just love i'm a real anglophile and like that's kind of the bread and butter if you want to go in that direction it's like i love oasis too me too I i don't even differentiate i don't even pit those two against each other which is a thing that most British people love to do. Yeah, I didn't. Oasis. I didn't get that because they're both good in their own ways. <laughs> they're so different, and I just love Blur. I love Graham Coxon's guitar. I love his solo records. Like uh, very, Chef's Kiss, beautiful. We love Britpop here. We love sure. it. Suede <laughs> too. Shout out to Suede. <laughs> Shout out to all of them. Mm-hmm. Melody's Echo Chamber, self-titled record. I, I like that record. It's a good one. <laughs> Nothing else I can say about that. Oh, I, I can say a tidbit about like how I discovered it, which was on tour, Like I think, with Frankie Rose. And we listened to that in the van. And that, we liked it. That's good driving music, especially at night. But don't. Like fall asleep, I'd say. Yeah, in the van. I love, I love, um, I love like beautiful psyche sixties Francoise Hardy kind of stuff. I love broadcast too. Um, Stereo just Lab. Just naming things now, <laughs> naming other things from your record collection. Yeah, that we could listen to. This next one, I was pretty stoked to see it because this probably would have been my favorite record of 2018 if I had discovered it in 2018. It was 2019 by the time I found it. But Michael Rowe, or Ralt, I know he's from Canada and lives in Montreal, so maybe I'm mispronouncing it. But it's a new day tonight really really gorgeous psych pop record i like it a whole lot it's like precisely yeah it's like to a t like he's like nailing the sound and the songs are great and i met him doing sound for him at alphaville actually oh cool and then i went to see him again um at our wicked lady and i just became buds with him and i just think he's He's awesome. He's just like surrounded by slayers too. Have you seen him live? No, his, I wish his, I wish I had been at like, that show at Alphaville. His band is like, oh, these white guys can play. These white guys are funky. <laughs> funky white dudes like me. Um, I'm a funky white dude. <laughs> I think the song off of that record that you should play is Pyramid Scheme. Great, great song. I love that song. We're only playing hits on this episode of Look At My Records. Mm-hmm. Moving right along to an artist that I love very, very much, 
Marshall Crenshaw, who's still going strong. Still going strong. The dude is amazing. Yeah. His album, um, Field Day. How did I... So basically... Okay, there is a Marshall Crenshaw song that entered rotation on Spotify a couple years ago. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you're like, why is this Jonathan Richmond song on every playlist, everywhere you go? There was a song that was on, that was like, just recommended on Spotify. And I felt like I heard it all the time. And I was like, who is this guy? Whatever. And I was shopping at A1 Records, which is one of my favorite record stores in the world on East 6th Street, 6th and A. Um, And I found Field Day in like a cheapy bin and I bought it and I took it home and I said, I'm so glad I bought this without without Googling this guy, without knowing anything, you know, I was like, is this just like a guy who was like on Arista and like got, was in like Tom Petty's band and then did his own thing. Like, you know, there's like just a world of recording artists that like kind of get lost by the label or forgotten by the label. And I feel like, he didn't like deliver or something. So we don't know him as like being the king of fucking power pop. Yeah. I mean, here he is. This guy is one of the most incredible power pop songwriters of the eighties. Definitely. And he's still putting out records. He actually uh, guest vocals for the smithereens now too, which I've seen them do. And because the Smithereens uh, lead singer passed away a couple of years ago, but they have uh, people sub in as guest vocalists, and he is perfect oh. for for that. He's oh, like sweet. Yeah, he's he's actually perfect. I'm like who? I'm like why didn't he go? I'm like who's? How bad was the cocaine problem? You know, like where <laughs> did he go? And I don't know. I'm just making assumptions. He played Buddy Holly in the biopic too. He was also also played in Beatlemania too. So he's done a lot of like music stuff. I find that yeah, that's been, like what I want to do. Yeah. I want to be cover bands. I just want to keep doing it when I'm you know well into my seventies. Let's go. Yeah, it's interesting because he kind of put out his own records and stuff, but then does all this like other stuff as well someone else i've been really diving back into that similar thing michael penn Mm -hmm. who's married to amy mann he Mm -hmm. written like a bunch of great solo records but hasn't put out a record in like 15 years but he does a lot of scoring for tv and films and stuff like that so so how are you so knowledgeable about this stuff i I love music But, is it, but I'm curious because, like, you're probably close to my age in a certain sense. Yeah, I, I think we're the same age. You said you started college in 2005, 2004. Uh-huh. Yeah, I started college in 2005, so I'm 33. So, like, so like I, I don't know. I'm just always interested because I'm, like, I love learning about things not on the Internet. I love just being, like... I've heard of this guy. I'm going to buy the record and then being like, holy shit. And then like reading the liner notes and being like, holy shit. 
Yeah. Like that, there's nothing more gratifying. That's always so fun for me too. It is cool picking up. I, I think it's so cool that you found that record in like a dollar bin too. Cause that's the ultimate find. It's like you paid a dollar for something that's yeah, worth so much one. more to you too, after hearing it and enjoying it. Like I love super tramp and it's always in the dollar bin, yeah. you know, there's certain things that like record stores will like patently be snobby about where you're like, I don't care that this isn't cool. It's so good. Totally. <laughs> totally. Or like, what is the value of this? Actually, my boyfriend got me a Kinks record for that I wanted for my birthday. And it's like a really nice pressing, but it's in a it's in a homemade case. Cause a lot of these records, they come without the sleeve. Yeah. Because if they had the sleeve, they'd be worth like hundreds yeah. of dollars. Yeah. It's Village Green, but like with an insane like collage made by whoever's record it was. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like, priceless. It's like worth way more than it would be. Yeah. If it had That's the thing about record being a record collector is if you have something like a Kinks record, even though it was pressed in the hundreds of thousands, the mm-hmm. early, even the early pressings, if it's in like mint condition it's worth like a shitload of money, you know? That's what people pay for when it's a record from the 60s or the 70s if it's an early pressing that's in really, really good condition because so many people that have those records after all these years, they just get beat up and stuff. So then they're not really worth anything. But yeah, it, especially if the vinyl was in good condition. that And that's an awesome album too. Oh yeah. Ooh, maybe my fave, second yeah. fave. It's a good one. Love the kinks. And last record you picked the blue swell by Beverly, which we've referenced a couple of times throughout this podcast. One of two amazing records by your former project slash band Beverly. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. What should I play from it? Um, I feel lame because I always do the same song off this record but i just think it's really good which one south collins good song that's a great song it's such a fun like it's kind of like the culmination of like everything i want to do as an artist in this song like the video like how we got everyone in a bus and brought them upstate and found this weird hotel and like everyone just like volunteered their time and it just all came together so beautifully. I love the way the recording sounds. It's hard for me to listen to old stuff and not be like, Ugh, yeah, you know? that's natural. I still, yeah. I still love that song and think it sounds great. What was it like going into recording this record early on in the interview today? You had mentioned that you and Frankie Rose for the first record were kind of going into writing the songs for the first Beverly record as this is a fun thing. We're going to have fun with it. And then, you know, going into the second record, the band established, you know, a a profile for themselves and became more well known. Did you feel pressure going into recording this record? No, my pressure is always just like self-generated. Yeah, Just do your best and just, try to be more honest and try to be more yourself that's all you can do yeah 
And we're all hard on ourselves, you know? Yeah. I'm hard on myself. All right. So now we're going to hear Drew's record picks, starting with Health Machine by Sam Evian, Fooled with the Wrong Guy by Balua, Hate to See You Go by The Mantles, She's So High by Blur, I Follow You by Melody's Echo Chamber, It's a New Day Tonight, Pyramid Scheme by Michael Ralt, For Her Love by Marshall Crenshaw, and South Collins by Beverly.
Welcome back, everyone. We just heard Drew's record selections. We heard Health Machine by Sam Evian, Fooled by Fooled with the Wrong Guy by Beula. Hate to See You Go by The Mantle, She's So High by Blur, I Follow You by Melody's Echo Chamber, Pyramid Scheme by Michael Rolfe, For Her Love by Marshall Crenshaw, and South Collins by Beverly. So Drew, Deanna, my awesome co-host, thank you so much for being here today. It was a real, real pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Tom. It's just, you know, someone's got to fly this ship, and I'm glad you're doing it. Hey, you are both (laughs) crucial to the flying of the ship as well. (laughs) So, Drew... Drew, you alluded to the fact that you basically have a second solo record done. It's recorded and everything like that. That's basically what's next for Drew Citron. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have another record coming out, hopefully April or May oh, of next sick. year. Like, let's just do it. Like, what's this dilly-dallying? Why am I always shilly-shallying? Do you know that in Britain they say shilly-shallying? what is wrong with them i love talking to people from the uk new zealand and australia and i interviewed the bats for uh, one of the recent episodes of look at my records and they used them yeah they're amazing and they use the words flatting together and i was really tickled by that term flatting yeah, like living. That means living together. Oh, flatting. Yeah, like flat. Isn't flat, isn't <laughs> flatulating. Yeah. Mm. They were flatting together in the early 80s, every member of the Bats. So I said that must have been really cool and a fruitful, creative period for the band. And they said, fruit, yes, it was. A fruit, fruit-related bat hang. Fruit <laughs> yeah. bat. Not to be confused with the fruit bats. Yes, not to be confused with the great fruit bats of sub-pop <laughs> records. The Ruminant Band, I love that song, and I think that's the name of the album. I can't remember. but um, We're going to play one more song from Free Now. We're going to play the title track, Free Now. Pretty emblematic of the whole vibe of the record, I think, Free Now. That's why it's the title track, I'd say. For sure. And to your listeners, I hope you're ready to get free. Yeah, we're going to get free. Deanna, Drew, thank you both very, very much. Thank you. Everyone, once again, Free Now is out via Park the Van. You can get it on limited edition vinyl. There's also compact discs at drewcitron.bandcamp.com. And here you go. Here's the title track, Free Now. I'm so free now Moving slow 